Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am history's worst monster, Scott Morris, and I'm joined today by the most dangerous man in the United Kingdom, Drew Tavendale. I thought we were trying to keep this under wraps, Scott. Nobody knew the who's the power was behind all the mischief. Our secrets are finally out. This, of course, is the Fuds on Film podcast. And today we have come not just to threaten your livelihoods, but also to talk about films. And to bury Caesar. Yes. I've got the wrong script here. <laughs> Friends, Roman Reigns, Hulk Hogan, all that. Uh, yes, today we're just talking about a bunch of films that we saw this month. So <laughs> we are going to just start doing that with Shazam. And that's uh, Drew. That's your fault. Okay. This is one of the other intros we've had, but I'm just going to ignore it and carry on. So this then is the second Captain Marvel film in about a month. However, this, despite featuring the first Captain Marvel character, is entirely distinct from the Marvel Captain Marvel character that we saw last month in Marvel's Captain Marvel. With me so far? Good, because I'm not sure I am. <laughs> this Captain Marvel, after trademark issues and a break in publication, is now known as Shazam. A particularly stupid name, being as it is his magic word stroke catchphrase and a really, really awkward acronym at that. <laughs> Seems equivalent to renaming Johnny Storm to Flame On or Wolverine Bub or Schnicked. But I may be avoiding the point here a little. <laughs> An ancient wizard, Jumon Hunsu, the last of his order, is magically summoning people from all over the world to see if they are worthy of inheriting his power. One such is Thaddeus Savannah who shows himself unable to resist the temptations of evil. Returned to Earth, the discombobulated youngster makes it his life's goal to return to the wizard's temple and gain power. You'll never guess what happens next. (laughs) That's right, he fixes the cable. (laughs) Well, don't be factuous, Drew. Okay, so now the grown-up Savannah, played by Mark Strong, finally finds a way to return to the temple, and rather than take the wizard's power, he takes the bad and evil power. Boo. Hiss. (laughs) In doing so, he releases the seven deadly sins, which are not concepts, but gargoyle-like demons, physical manifestations of ancient evil that, obviously, want to take over the world. Meanwhile, young Billy Batson, Asher Angel, is run away from yet another foster home and is given a final chance by Rosa and Victor in their diverse household. Here he meets Freddy, Jack Dylan Grazer, a superhero nerd and lover of Batman and Superman. While trying to get used to his new home, Billy is summoned to the wizard and deemed worthy, or possibly just deemed available, as the wizard's time is running short. And he's granted magical powers, foremost of which is his ability to instantly transform into a large muscle-bound adult man by speaking the magic word Shazam. He will, of course, have to face the bad guy, who is directed by the seven deadly sins, currently living in his eyeball, seems uncomfortable to destroy this new champion before he masters his powers and re-imprisons them but in the meantime Billy's going to make the most of his nifty new powers by buying beer and charging people for selfies you know all of that standard superhero stuff Uh, it was fair to say that I was very turned off by the trailer to this film it looked really really goofy and my immediate thought to seeing the character which I was previously only aware of through some DC Comics video games was How is this not just Superman with a palette swap? (laughs) Well, the film is pretty goofy, and in terms of abilities, etc., the character is Superman with a palette swap. (laughs) It turns out, though, that this isn't a bad thing, as Shazam is rather a lot of fun. It doesn't start out particularly promisingly, with the growling demons and Juman Hoonsu in a laughably bad fake beard and wig taking itself altogether far too seriously. 
I guess we're also supposed to feel some sympathy for the young Savannah in light of his father's behaviour towards him. But the stupid little get did actually cause a terrible car crash, so sympathy is in short supply. However, once the action jumps forward to the present day and Billy gains his powers, things improve immensely. Shazam is comfortably the lightest in tone of the films in the DC Cinematic Universe, and while I seem to like the darker stuff far more than many, the difference is welcome and probably needed. In terms of tone and structure, there are many comparisons to be drawn between this film and Spider-Man Homecoming, and this is undoubtedly a good thing. There's a decent helping of the whole, with great power comes great responsibility stuff, and a lot of humour to be mined from the teenage boy suddenly possessing a man's body, alongside them adolescent immediately taking advantage of looking sound like a grown-up. The Asher Angels are recently engaging screen presence as Billy, though it took me a little while to warm to him. But the real standout in this film is Zachary Levi, who does a remarkably believable job of playing a 13-year-old in an adult's body and voice. This feels like it would be very difficult to get right, and very easy to get wrong, but Levi gets it spot on and it's a crucial part of the film's success. The scenes with Levi's Captain Sparkle fingers, or any of the other monikers he gets, rather skirt around or dance around the name of the character in this, and Jack Dylan's Grazer's Freddy are generally the film's best, with the relationship feeling similar to Peter and Ned in Spider-Man. Shazam is its own film, though. It's definitely the more enjoyable of the two Captain Marvel films, and even largely avoids the Superman problem of the boringly invulnerable Godfella, and also avoids the whole Superman is a dick problem that has been persistent <laughs> since Man of Steel. Where it falls down is the villain, who once again tends more towards the dull take-over-the-world archetype and, once again, squanders the great Mark Strong. Though at least he's better served here than his last outing as a DC villain, and he is a part of one of the film's best gags, albeit as a straight man. Indispensable? No. Worth seeing? Assuming you're not burned out in comic book movies, then absolutely. And unlike Captain Marvel, no terrifying wax Clark Gregg monster. Yay! <laughs> uh, one last thing. I have a visceral hatred of the phrase, oh my gosh. Just say, oh my god. This film has monsters biting the heads off of characters, yet still, elsewhere, a character says, oh my gosh, and oh my god, it makes me angry. Grr, etc. Does that really have anything to do with Shazam in particular? No. No, it does not. <laughs> but I have never met a soapbox opportunity I didn't like. Gee, Willikers. <laughs> Yeah, I actually quite like the trailer for this, but I have not managed to get to cinema to see it, so uh, I can offer no further <laughs> no further knowledge on it. But yeah, I, I think it looks quite good. Uh, I'm quite glad that DC is having some range of tones. I mean, that's one thing that people seem to like about Marvel films that I don't, is that they do have very similar tones for a lot of it, and I prefer the stuff that's actually being a bit weird and being its own film. So yes, I shall endeavour to seek this out as, as best as I can. I think we're probably of a mind there Scott that yeah the DC stuff the darker stuff which you and I are both largely liked not without exception or without reservation but it's the fact that it's only dark they seem to have done so far yeah uh, or that kind of strange mishmash that was Justice League yeah. um, so, Zack Snyder's one hammer is a dark hammer <laughs> and, yeah. and everything looks like a dark nail to him so yes, yeah a lot of the Marvel stuff does have also the same tone and that's perhaps why uh, we've both enjoyed the Ant-Man films so much because they do have that different tone from a lot of the other stuff in there yeah yeah because they're trying something different with those and it works really well so this um, yeah this is this is welcome there's certainly also 
hints in this film about where it might be going in future the DC universe. So we will see. I, I don't want really to say too much about that because I, mm. I would rather spoil something, although you could probably guess without too much effort. Yeah, it's just nice to see them mix things up a wee bit. And it's largely successful. It's, as I said, the only bit where it really fails is the sort of rather leaden beginning of it. Right. It's a bit... Well, Mark Strong is definitely more towards your Ronan the Destroyer type dull villain. Hmm. But the start is just a bit... It's a bit po-faced. It, it looks a bit crappy too, actually. And then the rest of it is like... There's not all that much in the way of effects. Now. They've just splurged all their money in Aquaman. Uh, right. And it's actually probably better for it because it's just a man standing around in a silly looking suit. <laughs> um, but they really, the silly looking suit, do they at any point try to change it or make it look more, like, make it look more gritty like the sort of toned down Superman suit? No, mm-hmm. no, it's just a bright red suit with a this lovely clean white cape on it through the whole film. <laughs> yeah, I like that. They didn't try to X-Men it or Superman it or anything. It's like, nope, here we go. Primary colour man. Here we go. It's great. <laughs> I definitely recommended it. It's definitely more enjoyable than the last comic book film we saw, which was all right, but wasn't special. Yeah. And this is definitely more enjoyable. Good, good. So, we just mentioned Ant-Man with the ever-likable Paul Rudd, but he doesn't much often, much often, wonderful sentence, he doesn't <laughs> often get a chance to do a straight role, but that is exactly what he did in the next film we're going to talk about, which Scott's going to tell us about. The Catcher Was a Spy. Yes, yes, The Catcher Was a Spy. Now... There's something weird about this Ben Affleck performance, I thought, a quarter of an hour into viewing The Catcher was a Spy on the tiny screen of an interminable transatlantic flight a few weeks back. <laughs> the odd thing, it turns out, was that it's a Paul Rudd performance. <laughs> so you may want to keep that level of attention and viewing in mind before placing too much stock in any of these opinions about the divulge. <laughs> um, anyway, here we're plunged into 40s America, just before their entrance to World War II, and introduced to Rudd's Mo Berg, coming to the end of his days as a catcher for the Boston Red Sox. However, and at the risk of spoiling things, the, the bulk of this film is concerned with his wartime activities where he was a spy. Berg was a highly intelligent, highly educated man, Princeton educated, studying seven languages and just the sort of man the CIA's forerunner, the OIS, could use. The main through line is regarding efforts by Jeff Daniels' General Bill Donovan to ascertain how far along the Nazi atom bomb programme is, headed up by Mark Strong, him again, Mark Strong's Weiner Heisenberg. To that end, Berg along with Paul Giamatti's Samuel Goldspit, the noted physicist, and Guy Pearce's Robert Furman, a more military-minded OIS bod, are dispatched to Europe to get a handle on things by crossing front lines to interview Heisenberg's colleagues, ultimately leading to an order for Berg to make a call on whether or not to assassinate Heisenberg. Now, there's an uncertainty principle for you. Uh, The other arm of this film is Berg's secretive private life in which, at least as presented here, he's bisexual in a time when both the bi and the sexual parts of that were not spoken of, so perhaps not knowing all that much about it, uh, for sure, is not quite as unusual as the film presents. It does, however, present the biggest challenge for this film to overcome, inasmuch as it's not like any aspect of this film outside of the baseball is really a matter of record, so based on a true story holds about as much water here as it usually does. I enjoyed this film well enough. Rudd is, as always, a likeable lead, and there's a really great supporting cast that, well, do quite a lot with quite a little. Mm. The script is a little on the thin side, and perhaps that's unavoidable given that it's a character study of someone very averse to being studied, so I can't go in too heavy on the specifics as they just be invented. A conundrum, and one which the film seems content to brazen out with charm and polish. It has both in spades, and along with it being a subject I know prior knowledge of, makes it a very easy watch. It's not 
however, one that would trouble any awards and perhaps doesn't hold up to any intense scrutiny. That tracks well enough with the overall mediocre score of seen on review adequators, and I suppose in terms of a general recommendation I'll agree, it's a diverting enough couple of hours, but it's not worth going out of your way to see. Yeah, it's... It's okay, this film. I had no idea about the story. I guess very few people did. It seems to have been a tremendously secret character, a secretive character, which does make the whole trying to base a film on this character a real problem, as you mentioned, Scott, mm-hmm. and also, which basically means this is all bull for, for vast tracts of the film. Mm-hmm. It may be reasonable bull nonetheless so. <laughs> yeah it's quite interesting to see Paul Rudd do this I think that's probably the most interesting thing about the film is Paul Rudd doing this straight role apparently it's bad for him though because doing a straight role is the first time I've ever seen Paul Rudd not look like he did 20 years ago <laughs> Paul Rudd is apparently Hollywood's Dorian Gray um, <laughs> and this is the first time I thought oh, actually he looks like you know maybe at least 2 or 3 years older than he normally looks <laughs> now he has done one other straight-ish role that I can recall I've seen him in. But that was a role in which I thought he was woefully miscast and that was the rather let's say rather, what I mean is really rather terrible film, Mute. Mm, um, Which we disliked some time ago. (laughs) And he's much better placed in this. He's because there's so little of the character to see, because the character's so little known it's really it's, the interest is actually Paul Rudd not the character yeah. <laughs> uh, and I he's really quite impressed with this. I don't know how much of this is him actually knowing languages and how much of it is him just doing it phonetically but even if he's doing it phonetically he speaks in at least four different languages in this film and it all sounds really impressive yeah because well, apart from English obviously there's Japanese there's Italian there's German there may be French at some point and he he sounds fluent. So again, whether that's acting skill or actual language skill, I don't know, but I'm quite impressed by that. You don't get much of a chance to show that off in Marvel films, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> the problem of this film is that the story is a bit slight. Yeah. And the characters are a bit slight. It's got a fantastic cast, but most of them, notably Mark Strong, don't have an awful lot to do. Yeah. Mark Strong does, of course, get to sport yet another awesome wig um, <laughs> in his collection of bewigged roles, uh, of which he is in double digits now, at least in possibly <laughs> high double digits. Yeah, I kind of, I just wanted a bit more because the the character of Mo Berg is so, so not a character almost. <laughs> uh, I just, I want, I want more, and that's kind of I was left feeling rather unsatisfied by it by the end because I just wanted to to know more, and also. The, the way it finishes is a bit... So, was Heisenberg a good guy or a bad guy? Eh, eh. Who can say? I, I, I know people don't know. That's the, the point of the film is, is that historians are still debating it, but well, take a stance. Yeah. There's presumably a, 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 a consensus on which is more likely or... What was it? Eh, eh, eh. Uh, the other issue I have is that this is yet another film that persists in casting people who can't do accents to do accents. Tom Wilkinson has a complete inability to do any accent but his own. Why does he keep getting cast with non-English accents? I don't understand it, but it happens all the time. And he's not any good at it. It's an elaborate running joke, I think. (laughs) It could be. And likewise, Paul Giamatti, who I I like a lot. I think Paul Giamatti's fantastically entertaining. But the, this um, professor that he's supposed to be, is he, he's Dutch, I think. 
Yeah, he's mostly just Paul Giamatti sounding a bit odd. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I mean, it's only like 90 minutes or something this film, isn't it? It's, I think if you came across this of an evening, it's probably worth 90 minutes of your time just out of interest. I wouldn't make any effort to, to find it necessarily, but it's, it's interesting. Yes. So I guess crashing onwards, next film on the chopping block is The Kid Who Would Be King. Yes. From... Joe Cornball's Cornish. <laughs> a modern take on a medieval novel based on a Dark Ages legend set in contemporary London and with, though probably coincidentally, more than a hint of post-EU referendum political allegory. Sounds like a hard sell. Which indeed the kid who would, who would be king was, failing to recoup its budget at a box office that had already seen another two medieval films, including one based on the same character, flop in the preceding two years. A pity, since there are certainly things to like about Joe Cornish's The Kid Who Would Be King. Now, we all know that strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. <laughs> Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. You can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Nor just because you happen to pull a bit of steel from a lump of rock. Though either of these has the potential to be a considerably more capable leader than those that we conspicuously lack at this present time. Little cutting political commentary for you there, <laughs> listeners. Also sadly true, so we can all have a wee communal cry later on. Perhaps it's fortunate then that the power bestowed upon 12-year-old Alex Elliot... Louis Ashbourne Circus, after he stumbles upon Excalibur on a demolition site while fleeing from bullies, is done so more or less in secret, and doesn't result in some horrendously bloody and definitely legally iffy coup d'etat. Shortly after finding the sword, a strange young fellow, sometimes Angus Imry, sometimes Patrick Stewart, sometimes an owl, appears at Stonehenge, seeking the new king. This fella, going by the really cunning pseudonym of Merton, attempts to go on to comfort Alex's school to prepare him for his role. Though his plans are rather upended by his miscalculation and he now has four days, not four years, in which to help Alex save the world. Alex himself, though, isn't buying this at first. But when he is attacked by a demon knight, one of the Mortis Miles, undead warriors who serve King Arthur's half-sister Morgana, who wishes to take the sword and rule the world... He reconsiders his purchase. As King Arthur turned his enemies into allies, so Alex recruits his nemeses, school bullies Lance, Tom Taylor, and Kay, Rihanna Doris, and they, along with Alex's best friend Bedders, Dean Chamu, set off to Tintagel Island in Cornwall to find the entrance to the underworld, and also Alex's absent father. Cornish's script can be a bit heavy-handed with the messaging at times, but it's at least resolutely upbeat and earnest, much like its cast, and it's difficult not to like Circus and Shamu. I think Angus Imbri's trying very hard to be quirky performance could be a bit Marmite, but I rather liked it, save for his magical hand-waving. And Patrick Stewart is, as you would expect, great. Least well-served is Rebecca Ferguson, who spends most of her time covered in twigs as Morgana, though at least her dragon-harpy manifestation is a bit creepy-looking even if it perhaps has more of the video game cutscene than the feature film about it quality-wise. The real problem with the kid who would be king lies in the fact that the Arthurian legend never ties into the modern setting very well, with the film far too often falling back on Alex reading bits from a book and explaining to his colleagues what's happening. And talking of his colleagues, 
Alex's former bullies teaming up with him owes more to narrative necessity than character development. Morgana, likewise, suffers from missing motivation, her actions seemingly being explained by because evil. The kid too is very child-centric, with the adults, Sir Pat Stew aside, largely relegated to the periphery, as they ought to be, but even for children I think it's a little low on content for two-hour film, though to be fair it doesn't drag as much as it might. I really struggle to categorise this as much better than alright, much as I may want to, however it is a charming, cynicism-free, at least if you set aside the potential Brexit subtext, and often funny adventure yarn that many children and some adults will enjoy. Yeah, I liked this quite a lot, probably a little bit more than you from what I'm saying. Um, I thought it was quite a funny script, I enjoyed quite a lot of that. There's lots of uh, little Cornish moments in there for, that uh, I found quite amusing. Um, I, I do wonder if it's a sort of film that accidentally got a huge budget assigned to it, because it... it I think when it was when this one must have been in production, it would have been at the same time as they were kicking off the uh, the, the King Arthur film and the, the uh, yeah and that Robin Hood yeah, one as well. Yeah, those two so, films I mentioned at the start. It's got yeah. the two medieval films that had flopped in the last two years. I get the suspicion that when this was greenlit and in production, they're thinking, oh well, this will be the next big thing. Better give us some money behind it. And then it, when it's come out, it seems to have just kind of snuck out in cinemas. It didn't really get a hell of a lot of a push behind it. Certainly not for something you'd expect for a cinema that's already put what 150 million or something daft like that against it just put it out there and more or less let it fend for itself and and uh, it's no particular surprise that it died suspect that's possibly what they were expecting they'd already written this one off before it even got there which i think's maybe a trifle unfair it deserves better than that it might have been served better without that budget though actually there's a lot of cg work in there it's, it's perfectly fine but it's a lot of that bit seemed to be filler there's lots of just running away from things that are you know the big skeleton warrior things yes. it's, it's like fine but it's just it's just a lot of it just seemed to be kind of filler material which dragged it out a bit uh, whereas if you'd saved all that for just like the last you know battle at the end that would have been fine i think and yeah i mean there are moments that are kind of interesting the when they're training with fighting against the trees but yeah. i thought it was quite inventive i thought that was quite interesting and yes yeah. uh, whereas yeah once you've seen one skeletal horse warrior man you've seen them all you don't need to see it another yeah, two or three times. Yeah. Well, it's maybe more. The first one, there's the ones in the street with the car. Then there's at least one more in on the way to Cornwall. So at least three times, if not four, before they turn up at the end as well. It's yes, and they all look. They're just identical. They are identical things. Yeah. There's lots of them. It's, it's a bit. Yeah, filler is a good word, Scott. It's, the, the, I'm not quite sure what Cornish was doing there. Just the, there was no need to have that. I, I got it the first time. Yeah. It's almost the case of the uh, script expanding to meet the budget rather than <laughs> yeah, being just what it depends. Yeah. If this had the same sort of budget as Attack the Block did, I think it might have been a bit more inventive about, uh, about it and possibly would have been better. Because the way this is written, it's very British. I, <laughs> I, I can't imagine any version of this script that anyone ever picking up and going, oh yes, this is obviously a, a bit international bestseller. You know what I mean? It, it, it's a bit too parochial. Like the, the way, this, the way the fin- half of the final battle occurs in a school gym that's exactly like our gym when we were growing up, because yeah. we're about the same age as Joe Cornish. I don't know if school gyms still look like that, but apparently they do. In many ways, I think perhaps a film that was ruined by being given too much money rather than too little. Um, if you chopped about half an hour out of this and got rid of some of the dollar action or repeated action sequences. I think this could have been uh, really quite special. As it is, I still liked it a fair amount and uh, would probably recommend it. It's, it's stood up as well as any of the recent kids' films that we've been speaking about, I guess. Certainly much better than the average of those was, so I, I, would, I, would, I would recommend it. 
perhaps not entirely unreservedly, but uh, I enjoyed it quite a lot, and uh, I think you will too. Not you, obviously. I know what you think about it, but the more general <laughs> listener, you. Just the one of them. Is that how bad we've gotten? Pretty much, yes. Seems seems about right. Fair, yeah. fair. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, we're going to move on to something that I'm sure I've seen a trailer about. And if it's a trailer, the film, I think, is, it's got Dwayne Johnson in it. Correct. Right. That's my entire knowledge of the film, <laughs> apart from the fact it's called Fighting With My Family. Yes. So Scott should probably take that one. <laughs> yes, uh, Fighting With My Family. Uh, the WWE film's credit is normally where I'd recommend turning off a film. <laughs> Not the one at the end, the one at the start. It's normally a foretelling of a dreadful low-budget action film starring a wrestler, or sometimes a dreadful low-budget horror film starring a wrestler. Not that starring a wrestler is necessarily a bad thing, but if that wrestler isn't Dwayne Johnston or occasionally Roddy Piper, we're in trouble. It is, however, not typically followed up with a film for credits, so this is a little unusual. And one of the wrestlers here, it turns out, is Dwayne Johnson. So, that's good. Mostly. Anyway, back to the start. This introduces us to the glamorous spiritual home of professional wrestling, Checks Notes Norwich, and the Knight family, running a gym hall wrestling promotion and wrestling school. It's very much a family affair, with Nick Frost's Rick and Lena Hetty as Julia, uh, semi-retired from action, with their kids Jack Loud and Zack, and eventually Florence Pugh's Saraya, involved in the in-ring action. Both dream of making it big, and in the West at least, that means heading off to America and the WWE, where, spoilers, Saraya does eventually end up performing under the name Paige, hence this film. But that's skipping forward a bit. The bulk of this film comes to you directly from the Ladybird Big Book of Sporting Underdog Stories, with a dash of the showbiz underdog story, as befits pro wrestling, I suppose. Zack and Paige both hustle for the same job, but it is ultimately Paige who impresses Vince Vaughn's head trainer Hutch Morgan, enough to earn a place in the WWE developmental programme in Florida, which puts stress on their family relationships. And there's no less stress on Paige, as she struggles to uh, both to fit into America and to keep up with the training, being on the verge of quitting before her individuality and her family pull her through into making it in a way that will only be unpredictable to those who have somehow not seen a film before. Uh, Now, that's not to say it's automatically bad. Indeed, there's a fair amount here that I quite like. Lanky Gervaisian sidekick Stephen Merchant has been brought on board to adapt and direct and, at least for the sections closer to home, dealing with the foibles of familial relationships, he's brought a good amount of heart and humour to the beasts, with really solid, likeable performances from the young leads and also from Frost and Hedy. Uh, there's a drag factor to the film, and it's one that's been applied solely by the WWE, who are pitching this heavily towards them being a family-friendly dream factory. This is politely horse droppings. And while I'll forgive the usual inaccuracies to make a better or more streamlined story, it's a bit harder to overlook the airbrushing out of the head trainer of the uh, NXT at this time, who's Bill DeMott, who later left the company under a cloud of suspiciously lightly investigated bullying, assault and abuse allegations. So, nothing like as sympathetic as Vince Vaughn's character turns out to be, after his cut-rate drill sergeant act exhausts itself. And indeed, most of the Florida-based run of the film is a bit of a drag, favouring some remedial-level character development over humour, and well, it's clear it's not where Merchant's heart is. Back in Norwich, he's a bit more assured, which, with much more interesting and crucially funny character interactions, that makes the council schemes and playgrounds a lot more fun to watch than the glamorous hotels and beaches. It also earns a great deal of respect for me by showing the effects of youth not having a suitable outlet for their energies when the Norwich wrestling school briefly closes. Sure, I'm supposed to be worried about the kid who's orbiting a gang of drug pushers, but I'm much more impressed with the younger kids randomly trying to smash streetlights by gaffer-taping a hammer to a couple of broom handles. 
That's the sort of ingenuity and drive we'll need post-Brexit. So, uh, a bit of a surprise for me. Uh, my expectations were not high, and it <laughs> flew past them very easily. It's by no means earth-shattering or in any way original, but it's very warm-hearted and just quite a lot of fun. Uh, yes, much more amusing and uh, warm and friendly than I was expecting. Obviously trying to do a bit of a PR work for the WWE while it's doing it, which is quite obviously self-serving and very much the least successful part of the film, but uh, the rest of it is more than good enough to make up for it. Another very... Uh, well, I was going to say, it, it feels like it should be a very parochially British film. It's got a very kind of British sense of humour, as you might expect, from someone like Stephen Merchant. But uh, I did watch it in Mexico and it seemed to go over well enough for the crowd. So, who's to say? Uh, yes, uh, quite amusing and I would recommend it, actually. Fair enough. Um, I wouldn't have minded seeing it. I just it was gone by the time you'd even mentioned it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not available on any streaming services or anything yet, so yeah. I didn't uh, watch it. Worth a look when it pushes up. In that case, I guess we shall batter onwards to Triple Threat, a film with a great deal of battering. Drew, would you like to give us a, a rundown on that? Yes. Um, if, you, yes. If, if there was a plot for that, I can't really remember one. But <coughs> Plot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're funny. I, I enjoyed those first 20 seconds. <laughs> There's one major theme that runs through Jesse V. Johnson's Triple Threat, uh, and I wonder if you'll be able to work out what it is by the time I get to the end of my... Screed. <laughs> Chinese businesswoman Xiao Shan, Selena Jade, has vowed to devote vast sums of her inheritance to cleaning up corruption in Indonesia, particularly in the city of Mahajaya. This causes much consternation to those involved in organised crime. Here headed by champagne drinking lady, who orders a hit on Xiao Shan. Iku Waisi's man lives with his wife in, for some reason, what is supposed to be an MI6 black site in Thailand. An MI6 black site where a dangerous terrorist is kept in a cage, along with women and children, for some reason. (laughs) This MI6 facility is also run by an Indonesian and an Australian. (laughs) Also, for some reason. A group of mercenaries, led by Michael Jai White's Devereaux and employed by Champagne Drinking Lady, make an attack on this camp in order to break out the terrorist, who is, for some reason... Not actually a terrorist, but another mercenary, without whom the other mercenaries can't act, for some reason. Amongst this group are Tony Jazz Paiyu and Tiger Chen's Bolcut, whatever his name was. <laughs> if you see this film, you know why I'm calling him that. Uh, <laughs> who were hired for their local knowledge. Unlike the rest of the planet, the jungles of Thailand are apparently not directly beneath space, so GPS doesn't work. They are left to die in an explosion. I bet you can't guess why. An explosion which also kills Man's wife, but fortunately leaves him merely dusty. Man tracks down Paiyu and Bolcut, and after finding out that they were also victims of the mercenary group, uses them as bait to draw out Collins for some... Ah, no, 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 wait, this one works and makes sense, yay! (laughs) Man then, for some reason, deliberately passes up his opportunity to take revenge on Collins. Not to find out who's behind this all, this just sort of happens somehow. Well, probably for some reason. <laughs> but because... Well, because... Well, because they can't have a fight at the end of the movie if he's killed him halfway through, can they? <laughs> That's rather the problem with Triple Threat. It has places it needs to get to, but no satisfying way, nor indeed any real idea at all of how to get there. Why can't Paiyu and Bolcut stop the people in the camp dying? Well, they can't defuse the bomb. They said that it's not a bomb. It's a demolition charge, but pulling the two detonators out of the C4, sorry, Composition 4, as for some reason it's rather awkwardly called, 
it's too difficult. The mercenaries fire automatic weapons on a group outside of a television studio. They'll come over all Imperial Stormtrooper when it comes to hitting their actual target. They'll launch an assault on a police station with grenade launchers, but <laughs> can't fire to tuck tuck directly in front of them. <laughs> for some reason. Likewise, Chow Chan decides, for some reason, that she, a Chinese citizen who also happens to know the Chinese ambassador, would be better served by not going to the Chinese embassy. Of course, outside of the plot, the reason is very clear. The filmmakers need to get the characters to the final showdown and couldn't think of a good way to do it, so didn't bother. Triple Threat feels very much like it has been written with a starting point and an end point in mind, and nobody much knows or cares what goes on, plot-wise, in between. There are no characters, and everybody is very angry all of the time. For some reason. I know many people argue that genre cinema should get a pass in many of these things, but that is not a stance I have ever supported. I don't care what the genre is, the components need to be good. What I do concede, however, is that plot, character dialogue, etc. can have lesser importance to, in this case, the action. And if the action were of a high enough quality, then my complaints could be set aside as relatively inconsequential or even nitpicking. So, is the action of a high enough quality? Well, there lies the rub. There are a handful of entertaining fights, a few moments of delightful goriness, like someone being burst with a grenade, and, well, not a lot else, really. That's the problem. There are only a handful of decent action sequences with a lot of space between Even for a 95-minute film, it feels really empty. It's far from the worst film I've ever seen, but when you're relying on Tony Jaa at all to act rather than kick arse, then you've rather (laughs) missed the point. Yeah, I I wish there was a a redraft of this film that just had more hand-to-hand stuff. Um, Most of this gunplay is quite dull. Uh, I, I would say that despite it being just fundamentally stupid um, i was i was on board with it for like the first hours like because you kind of get the, the cut of this within the first couple of minutes the way that it's battering through what passes for a plot basically in voiceover and then just getting on to stupid things happening it's like okay right uh, i get you I'll, I'll run with you for a little while uh, but you know, the last half hour completely drifted away from it it does quite well to coast on some decent early doors action and that poor lassie getting gibbed great <laughs> launcher um, and there's some really good uh, hand-to-hand combat stuff which is all quite good lots of nice little kickboxing bits but then it just sort of tweedles around and has more gunfights that don't really go anywhere and it's just people running away from things for about an hour and uh, it kind of lost me at that point and it got, by the end of it I just didn't really care all that much like I said absolutely baffling the way it's been written so why are you and I must desperately get revenge on this one guy in particular. I, it is, he's never written as caring about the rest of them. And he, he could have shot the guy umpteen times. Like, nope, I've got to wait till the end because I need to get to that shootout in a dilapidated hotel for some reason. And uh, yeah, just daft, daft stuff. Yeah. And the guy he's getting revenge on isn't. He was the person getting rescued from the yeah. camp, not the person who was doing it. So he's not really the person who should be getting revenge on. It's like, yeah. And it, it's so strange. And it, it kept cutting back to the uh, the, the ultimate paymaster of all this, uh, the, the Chinese lassie with the champagne drinking woman, as you say. And that doesn't resolve anywhere, does it? I don't think it does, or does it? Yeah, she gets arrested, but... Um, like She gets arrested off-camera by people that we've never seen before from the Chinese embassy? 
I don't well, yeah, it's like in Indonesia. It's in the end. It's like yeah, because he made a phone call, but he's never found out who she was. Never seemed interested. And I was like, Meh. Yeah. Why the character was even there. Because yeah, um. he keeps there's two characters, and she's one of them. Where they keep sort of showing them only from like the kind of silhouetted profile or just from behind. Like, that's the sort of thing you do either if you never ever show the character, mm. or that you're supposed to under- not realise who they are and it's a big reveal at the end. It's like, well, no, I don't know who these people are. And then one of them, you actually see their face like halfway through is the American um, arms dealer guy. I, like, I, I don't know who you are. <laughs> why, why do I care? Um, so, yeah, it's, I, I don't understand the point of any of this. Like, can I yeah. just have, like, Tony Jack kicking people in the head? Because I'd watched that for a long time. Yeah. And Eco Wise is good in. Um, I can't remember if he's in the first raid, and he's in the raid too. Like, I think he's in both, yeah. Yeah, just he's good at kicking arse, and that was the, the raid films like was wonderfully crunchy. Yeah, um, which this film sorely lacks. Yeah, has it in a few moments, but nothing like enough of it. Yeah, and for the bad guys, I don't know Michael Jai White's all right. But, um, Scott Adkins, I, mean, I suppose he's he's about as dangerous as a man from Sutton Coldfield could be, uh, but. <laughs> When you want Kung Fu Masters, it's not really the location you would go for, I think. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Michael J. White's just one of those characters. He's, he's angry through the whole film. It's like because apparently they never gave him any character motivation at all. So yeah. uh, angry, that'll do. <laughs> and uh, you, the big Dutch guy with the glasses and the heavy machine gun, um, <laughs> whose character ang- is glasses? <laughs> yes, or whose character is angry with glasses? Yes. Uh, that's that's the differentiation. Uh, and then there's the other guy who has so little cart, I'm not even sure that he's angry or not, I just remember he was there. <laughs> and he got hit in the head to the side with a breeze block, but uh, yeah, that's it. Okay. Yeah, perhaps a disappointment. I, I'm not sure if I was expecting much because I never really heard about it before we uh, put it on this list. But um, yeah, it's. I'm sure at some point you'll be able to find a YouTube supercut of the four or five decent fight scenes in it and then you can probably save yourself 90 minutes of it which is even though as you say it's a brief film did felt like it was dragging by the end and I can't really yeah. recommend it there's a few decent moments in there but nothing like enough of them to make it worthwhile uh, seeking out I was um, at the same time apprehensive and hopeful about this after the disappointment that was The Night Comes For Us yeah, uh, yeah. which Eco Wise is also in and I was just hoping that it would just be more about action and in some ways it's better than that film because the fights are shot much more interestingly. Not just these wide, flat yes. shots that never change. And also, while it's not really explained what's going on, it wasn't like I was confused. There's was like, yeah, that's just stupid. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Was, um, they had the night gun first. I was like, well, who is this woman? Why is she here now? <laughs> why, why are you in your eighth language in this, in this scene? That's, so I suppose it's better in that regard, but both left me wanting considerably more. I long for the days of Tony Jaa rescuing elephants. Yeah. That wasn't all that long ago, was it? So even for big action fans or martial arts fans, I think it's probably one you'd put quite low down your list. You'll disappointment, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, at the risk of giving away my thoughts about talking of great disappointments, we're going to finish up with Vice, Scott. Yes, uh, director Adam McKay follows up with the big short with another film attempting to mine entertainment from arguably dry subject matter, enlisting Christian Bale to again abuse his body to inhabit notoriously big Vice President Dick Cheney. We follow him across his younger days as a college dropout drunk before his wife, 
Amy Adams Lynn straightens him up enough to get him into a government internship programme. There he works his way up the Nixon-era Republican Party structure under the then economic advisor Donald Rumsfeld, played here by Steve Carroll in a fake nose. After all that Watergate unpleasantness, however, Rumsfeld and therefore Cheney get a bit closer to power in Ford's administration, but after Jimmy Carter's election, he runs for the House of Representatives, a task made difficult by Cheney having the warmth and charisma of a bag of concrete. Still, he makes it, eventually working his way up to Secretary of Defence under Bush the Elder's presidency. However, it's his second act that's the beaten potatoes of this as he returns as Vice President under Bush the Younger's run with a vastly expanded remit over previous VPs and a much more expanded interpretation of the sort of power that the executive branch can wield, leading in no smart to today's anti-peachy global situation. Along the way it will deal with, or well, mention, Cheney's health and family <laughs> issues, perhaps in an attempt to show us that even history's worst monsters occasionally pet a dog. Really, it's here that Vice falls on its face, but before getting to that, I should say that in general I actually rather enjoyed Vice. It's centred on a very impressive bail performance and some really great supporting terms from the likes of Sam Rockwell, Tyler Perry and Eddie Marsden. It's funny enough to maintain interest over a perhaps shade too long, two hours, twenty-ish runtime, and I like it well enough to recommend it to anyone that's like this tolerance left for politics. There seems to be altogether too much politics these days. However, and maybe I'd misread this, there's an expectation set up at the start of the film that I'd get some sort of insight into Jenny uh, Cheney's thought process and character. The text scroll says something along the lines of few people knowing what he was responsible for. I took that as meaning we'd get something a bit deeper, but it turns out it was meant literally. This film is in essence a very well-produced, flashy adaptation of a Wikipedia article. (laughs) And the central, no one knows what Jerry was up to, is idea is surely horse droppings. Even with only a marginal interest in US politics, there's nothing presented here that wasn't very well reported at the time, analysed subsequently many times over, uh, certainly of his most impactful vice presidency era. For me, I suppose uh, it provided a little bit of detail of his earlier career that I wasn't aware of, but nothing that, had I been interested in, couldn't have quickly gleaned from existing sources. I think the film knows it's weak in this regard, hence the desperate address to camera, Hail Mary, that it ends on, but that's too little and too shallow, too late. Uh, There's surely more interesting elements to mine here. For example, his relationship with his openly lesbian daughter while being in a party that actively opposes gay rights and the terrible friction that causes when another daughter tries to run for office and uh, goes against that. You know, this is shown, but it's very quickly passed over and not analysed in any way. I suppose it's the same problem as The Catcher Was a Spy has. Uh, There's just not a lot of reliable information to draw from in that regard, but perhaps I'd be more annoyed if it invented it, but it does rather kneecap any meaning from this film. Uh, It's an entertaining enough film, and if you live through the this era in some form of seclusion from the world, or heaven forfend, are young enough not to have experienced it firsthand, you may get a lot more out of this. Even when presenting little to new information to me, I still more or less enjoyed it. I just wish that it was a bit less superficial. Yeah, uh, so quite different experiences of this. I had really been looking forward to this. I, I mean, I didn't think a lot of the, the big shot, so I suppose that tempered it somewhat, but it had such a fantastic cast. The trailers looked good. I like Sam Rockwell a lot. Christian Bale's fantastic. And it's, it's a superb performance in this. Mm-hmm. This film put me off on the wrong foot from, like, the title screen, basically. When it's saying, like, Dick Cheney's really secretive and nobody knows what happened. Um, and then we tried our fracking best. Mm. Uh, yeah, sod off, film. I already don't like your tone. Like, it's not big, it's not clever. It's fine if the your characters are like swearing. But they put it in the title card like that. Just, it, I don't know, it, just, it really 
sat wrongly with me. I was like, yeah, sod off you get, was how I was feeling about Mackay <laughs> at the time. Um, and the big problem I have with the film, well, first of all, yeah, I thought this was supposed to be a, a comedy. And I keep on to think, I'll say that I didn't laugh once. Well, no, I laughed exactly once. And I know exactly which point I laughed at. Um, and it was a reference to members with tiny little wigs on, which I laughed at just because it was so <laughs> absurd. Yeah, the big problem I have with this film is that almost without exception, every single character in this film is an absolute... Republican? Oh, that's a synonym, yes. Uh, <laughs> it's an absolute king canute. <laughs> almost without exception. Like, there, there's no, there are no good people in this. And that's a problem. I mean, you don't have to have likeable people as your central characters, and many people aren't, and that's, they're, they're still interesting or important to learn from. Uh, I just don't feel this film is teaching me anything. It's like you say, Scott, there's nothing like here that's like, oh, deep insight or new knowledge apart from maybe his backstory, which I didn't care about. Yeah. But yeah, I don't really care where this horrible, evil man came from. He's a horrible, evil man. Do I need to know? Um, there's no real insight to his character. I get the feeling we're supposed to award him points for, like you said, like, the, like an evil person also maybe pet a dog, but it's like, or because he, in some really messed up way, supported his daughter and loved his daughter. But yeah, you don't get points for that. That's a given. You're supposed to do that. Yes. You only lose points by not doing it. Yes. Yeah, um, I found. I, I don't know if it's her performance I didn't like, or just because of the characters I like about her. Particularly disliked Amy Adams. In this, um, I think it probably is the character, but the character is just really deeply unlikable. Yeah, and, but with absolutely no charisma though. At least Dick Cheney, at least as played by Christian Bale, has some sort of has an aura about him, which is completely lacking in Lynn Cheney. Yeah, I just, I did not get on with this film at all. It's not awful, and it's probably worth watching. Well, actually, no, I wouldn't say that because I don't like. I wouldn't recommend it. But the, some of the performances are really good, so at least enjoyed that part of it. It's weird, it takes the same sort of, sort of tack in some places as the big short did, which was like, like lots of fourth wall breaking and sort of trying to explain to the, the viewers what's going on. But it sort of it did it in a half arsed way, so I either needed to do it in as much as as an advanced state as the big short did it, or not at all. Because when he did it just every now and then, like with Naomi Watts as the newsreader, it just it just didn't feel like it belonged in that film at all. It felt so alien. And it, when you find out, basically, it's not quite a framing device, but the, the really messed up way that they give for Jesse Plemons being the narrator, that bothered me so much. That was just, that was horrendous. I think we fouled up way to do it. And also, about as subtle as a brick when they focus on that thing lying on the table for about what feels like five minutes. Yeah, uh, I'm just massively disappointed by this film, unfortunately. Dick Cheney's a bad man. I knew that going in. I don't feel I have any insight for any further into him coming out of it. He's a terrible person who ruined his country, ruined much of the world, was responsible for, at least indirectly, possibly directly, for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of deaths. And yeah, I really want to make films with people like that. Yeah, look. Don't know, lot, lot to unpack there, but um, if I suppose if the central criticism you've got is that Cheney's a, an absolute dick, then we're not going to be able to get past that. You just couldn't have a film with Dick Cheney that you'd like, then. Yeah, well, see, I don't know. I mean, no, I think you could, but I'm just not quite sure what it would be. But I, mean, I, I think this film has 
failed in at least one regard in it, as much as there is no understanding of what what the man's really thinking or what makes him tick. All it's really doing is presenting what he did. And I suppose there is some value in that, but not as much as I think that it thinks that it has. It's yeah. it's just, as I say, it's just a bunch of stuff that happened. It's like, okay, but I actually already knew most of the stuff that happened, certainly the important stuff of it. And uh, yes... It, that's where it really say falls flat for me. There's just there is there isn't anything more than just a list of events that happens to be told in a sort of slightly quirky way, and uh, yeah, to a degree it makes it hard to recommend that anyone spend like what, two and a half hours of their life, uh, their one life they'll get on this earth watching something they probably already knew what happened. If you if you somehow don't, then it's worth taking a look at. If you've I, I do see what you're saying, and I did find it funnier than you did. But um, if you, certainly if you didn't find that bit amusing, where it's trying to at least lighten things up a little bit, then yeah, there's not a lot to get to be gleaned from it if you don't if you're not on board with that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know too. It's like again, this now this may not be true, so it's maybe why it's not here. But I mean, if if you see a film where somebody powerful like him is manipulative, how he tries to sort of play people around them and there's a little of that in this film but it's more just yeah everybody else is already an absolute Danish king of England already you know (laughs) it's not like he's corrupting people or making anybody do things they don't want to do don't realise they're doing everybody in this film is a terrible person yeah everybody so it's uh, yeah there was no real in for me in this film Mm. again it because you can make films about terrible, terrible people. There's lots of them, and often they're very entertaining or worthy. I just, I don't know, they just need eat. Ah, I don't know. I don't need to describe it. It's just, yes, I was, I'll stop there. I, just, I <laughs> didn't like it. I, I was really disappointed. And Christian Bale's performance was fantastic, but everything else about the film, just no. And that, that Jesse Plemons thing really bothered me. It was really crass. Fair enough. Um, a very disappointing way to end uh, the show. Bit of a doubter then. Okay, well, thanks very much for your attention. If you'd like to get in touch with us about this or any other issues, then please do so on Twitter. You can do so at FudsOnFilm, or you can email us, podcast at FudsOnFilm.com. We'll be back with you pretty soon with a look at some Pedro Almodovar films. I think we're all looking forward to that one. And, uh, yes, until next time, take care of yourself and each other. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Also, um, I love Pedro Almodovar, so next time we'll be less of a miserable moaning bastard, so sorry about that. Uh, Bye. (laughs) 